Fights On is produced with commercial consideration from Cubic Corporation. Since 1972, Cubic's ACMI has been a cornerstone of air combat range instrumentation. Cubic's LVC will expand that capability into the future across multi-domain operations. Truth in Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Welcome back to Fights On. Thanks for sticking with us through that last marathon episode. There was a lot of information to take in. In true AAR spirit, I'm taking some of your listener feedback and breaking this next episode into two entirely separate parts. Part one of We'll Make You Better features Air Force F-16 pilot and weapons school instructor Andy Chaos Davis talking to us about the USAF Weapons School, its history, concept, and execution. And then we'll go a little deeper talking about the F-16 school specifically with air-to-air, air-to-ground, and suppression of enemy air defense missions. So get ready to roll in on target, because the fight's on. BFM is a, is a game of uh, inches. So we got to figure out how to, one, defeat his uh, shots that are coming into us, and also kill him uh, as quickly as possible. So we're teaching our students how to, how to drop bombs in very close coordination with friendly guys on the ground. A lot of our bombs were uh, not blowing up high order. The aggressors are entering the airspace at this time. Cruise action, the combat spread was tight. Roger, tell you, I've got one and he's in a left-hand turn. That's true, you're about to get guns. Box one on the F5, nose down. Turn in, fights on. All right, welcome back. We're here today with Andy Chaos Davis, Air Force F-16 pilot and weapons school instructor, to talk about the U.S. Air Force weapons schools, their weapons school system, how they teach, and what they teach. So welcome, Andy. Hey, Scott. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll call you Chaos, if that's okay, and if you don't mind. Uh, give us a little background on what brought you to the Air Force, what took you to the F-16, your tours in the Air Force, and how you got to the weapons school. Yeah, sure. So I, I kind of grew up around uh, the Air Force. My dad was a, was an Air Force pilot. He was actually in the Idaho Air National Guard when I was when I was born. He was flying RF-4s there and quickly transitioned to flying F-16s right after I was born down in uh, the Kansas Air National Guard. So I have uh, some of my first uh, memories as a, as a child are, are being around F-16s and kind of hearing some of his stories when he came home from work and, and whatnot. And I kind of always knew from a young age that that's what I wanted to do. I, I come from a family that has a very strong aviation background. And uh, so, you know, the opportunities to be around aviation and to fly smaller airplanes when I was growing up were plentiful. And so I was kind of born with aviation in my blood. And so couple that with the attacks on uh, September 11, 2000. Uh, one and you know I got a pretty strong desire to uh, serve at that point, so that kind of fed in very well with my with my passion for aviation, and that kind of set me on the path to uh, try to get into the United States Air Force Academy and go that route. So uh, I went to the Air Force Academy and graduated somewhere in about the middle to lower third of the class. Uh, but I did graduate, you know, <laughs> D for uh, D stands for done. Uh, I did graduate and uh, 
went on to Air Force pilot training and did okay there and uh, was lucky enough out of uh, out of pilot train to to get assigned the F16 which uh, was my top choice based on kind of growing up around it and watching my dad fly it when I was uh, when I was younger and so I was thrilled to uh, to get the uh, to get the Viper out of pilot training and I had three different assignments in the active duty and my first one was in Kunsan South Korea uh, as a brand new guy out of the B course did 18 months over there, then went to uh, Shire Force Base, South Carolina. Spent uh, about four years there. During my time at Shaw, I uh, went out to Air Force Weapons School as a student and then came back to uh, Shaw for a short period of time and then uh, got transferred uh, back out to uh, Nellis to be an instructor at the uh, Weapons School. I did about uh, four years of instructing at the uh, Weapons School. Then made the decision to get out of the active duty, and uh, that brings me to today. I'm uh, I'm a part-time, what we call a drill status guardsman uh, in the Colorado Air National Guard, flying uh, Block 30 F-16s there. All right. Very nice. You know, I'll say for the listeners, and I've said it in a couple of other episodes, I, I just feel like I always have to keep saying it. Contrary to what the media portrays, fighter pilots tend to be pretty humble kinds of guys. And so, you know... When we talk about finishing like middle of the pack at the Air Force Academy, I just feel the need to point out what rarefied air you're already in to be there. And I think the fact that you selected F-16s, uh, your first choice speaks a lot to your your aptitude, right? You, they don't give those to guys who aren't going to be able to cut it. So all that being said, I appreciate that. Let me ask the question, and I don't know if this is something you'd be able to determine. You know, if you're ever flown any aircraft, actual airframes your father ever flew? I know there have been a couple of B-52 guys who've been able to track that back. I am pretty sure that I have not flown any airplanes that, uh, that any F-16s that my dad flew. Uh, I am, however, fairly certain that during a deployment, I was flying over northern Iraq in two th- early 2000, uh, would have been 2015, I pulled up to get gas from a KC-135, and that KC-135 was from the Kansas Air National Guard. And my dad actually, uh, throughout his guard career, had about six months where he was flying KC-135s for the Kansas Air National Guard. And uh, I did a little bit of research and found out that that tail, that registration number on that uh, on that airplane was uh, an airplane that they had during the time that he would have been there. So there's a very good chance that he flew that airplane and I was getting gas from it, you know, 30, 40 years later wow. over Northern Iraq on a combat mission. So yeah, uh, yeah, pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I, I know that for people who have generations in the military, just in general, it really gives you that feeling of being part of something bigger. Yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely right, Scott. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that and go back in history a little bit and talk about the Air Force Weapons Schools. Everyone's familiar with the Navy, at least the Fighter Weapons School, or they think they're familiar with it from the movies, and it gets a lot of press, but the Air Force was actually, you know, there first. So can you talk me briefly through the background of the U.S. uh, AF Weapons Schools and how they differ from what we see uh, even in the media of Top Gun, and then we'll really start drilling down into them? Yeah, sure. So, the, the Air Force Weapons School actually started as the Aircraft Gunnery School in uh, 1949 at Nellis Air Force Base, which was then, back then, called Las Vegas Air Force Base. And that school, the whole purpose of that school was to take guys from their roots to 
being expert gun shooters in whatever airplane they were flying. And it has evolved since then. First of all, the name has evolved from the Aircraft Gunnery School to the uh, U.S. Air Force Fighter Weapons School, and now it's the uh, U.S. Air Force Weapons School. And it's been a uh, total evolution over the last 60, 70 uh, years where we've added uh, a lot more squadrons, which are now called divisions to the weapons school and added a lot more capabilities to the weapons school. So now it's not just a couple of different uh, fighter type aircraft that we teach at the uh, weapons school. We really focus a lot now on integrating all different aspects and all different types of uh, air platforms that the Air Force has, that the Navy has, and then we also go into multi-domain. So we're bringing in considerations of space and cyberspace to uh, to really teach our students how to integrate these things well. Yeah, so we've got a, a weapon school or a system of these divisions in schools that are geographically distributed. We can talk about that in a minute, but you're bringing sure. in just about every warfare area in the Air Force, and the Air Force rightfully so considers things like intelligence and logistics to be warfare areas. So everyone, you know, F-35, F-16, F-15, F-22, sure those are out there, but you've got guys training on the U-2 and, uh, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles or drones. You've got them in the J-Stars, you've got them in the tankers, you've got them in your kilos, right? You've got everything out there because really what it comes down to is it's a completely integrated fight these days, right? That's, that's totally right. I, I've flown in some, uh, some exercises at Nellis, uh, quite a few exercises at Nellis where we had 70 to 80 aircraft, uh, just on the, the blue, the good guy side. And, uh, you know, we were fighting 20, 30, 40, uh, aircraft on the on the red side, the bad guy side, and in addition to all those aircraft, we had capabilities from space. We were using some stuff with uh, with, with satellites. We're using uh, we're integrating some cyberspace effects into our missions. And uh, Scott, you hit the nail on the head with uh, with intelligence. You know they they are super critical to our fight because without intel, we're kind of just totally guessing. And so intel brings a really important dynamic to our uh, to our mission planning as well as to our execution uh, you know so that we're not kind of shooting uh, shooting in the dark right and then the logistics side of course I think a lot of people think about getting the what you know what's the old saying the beans the bullets the band-aids in the theater and you need all that stuff and you can't fight if you don't have that but there's also the complexities of now, special operations force or even general purpose force insertion of forces, right? And that all has to be integrated, coordinated, uh, the tanking to get everyone in. It all has to come together. And, and what the Air Force did was to look at all that and say, it's great to train the fighter pilots to be graduate level best in the world, but we need everyone to be graduate level best in the world so that we can achieve dominance and supremacy over the battlefield. That's right. Yep. And, you know, to pile onto that, uh, for, to, to have everybody uh, graduate level uh, best in the world is one thing, but uh, to take it even a step further, we need to take everybody who's the absolute best at what they do at their different missions, and we need to make them the best at being able to talk to each other and figure out what each other does well so that they can integrate their effects uh, together uh, to, uh, 
you know, to achieve uh, whatever we're trying to, to achieve in a specific mission. Yeah, I think that's a really important part because I know just between services, you know, Navy talking to Air Force, talking from an Aegis cruiser to, uh, you know, F-16s on, on cap stations over Iraq, it's a different language. And then within the Navy, talking between a surface ship and aircraft are a different language. And I imagine it's the same thing talking between Air Force fighters and Air Force transports. It's a different language and you need to learn that language and understand what they're talking about to get everything coordinated at the right place at the right time. Yep, that's exactly right. Yep. Okay. So you did mention this is uh, the headquarters and a lot of the divisions are at Nellis, but they're also distributed throughout the country in some cases, right? They are. Uh, we have some units uh, from the weapons school that, uh, for instance, uh, the, the B-1 unit is, uh, is I believe it's at, uh, it's at Dias Air Force Base, uh, Texas, although it mm-hmm. might be up in uh, at one of their other bases. But uh, And then we've got units that are down in Florida, some of our special operations units, some C-130 special operations units, some U-28 units are, uh, are down there in Florida. We've got our B2s that are at Whiteman. They're geographically separated from uh, from Nellis, obviously. And then uh, there are several other units. And so that's a really cool part of, of weapons school is we have all of these units. Uh, a good a, a good portion of the weapons school units are all co-located at Nellis, which provides us the opportunity to, if I have a question as a Viper guy uh, for a Strike Eagle guy or uh, an RC-135 operator, I can just walk down the uh, the hallway and go talk to those people face to face, and I can uh, and I can sit in on their briefs and I can sit in on their debriefs and learn from them. So it makes it a little bit more difficult when we have these globally separated units because if I have a question about a capability of the B two or how they execute something, I can't just walk down the hall and talk to uh, talk to my B two brother. And so you know I got to pick up the phone and uh, you know talk to him over a. Uh, you know, a classified secure line so that uh, so that I can get these questions answered. So uh, they do participate in, they do eventually come out to Nellis at the end of the course to, uh, as we, as we kind of do our capstone exercise and, and do these really large exercises. But even throughout the rest of the course, it's, it's very common that we fly missions with uh, these geographically separated units that they will take off from wherever they are. Let's say, let's use the B2 as an example uh, out at uh, Whiteman, just outside of Kansas City. We will do all of uh, all of our planning with them uh, for a mission over VTC and over the phone. They'll take off from uh, from Whiteman. They'll fly a thousand or fifteen hundred miles, whatever it is, out to our ranges out at Nellis. We'll take off all of our airplanes from Nellis, and we'll meet them in the uh, in the airspace and execute the uh, the mission. And, you know, I think what's really important that, that listeners, listeners understand about that is, is that is how warfare is executed these days with the tyranny of distance that, that we have to overcome is I'm likely not going to be able to take off from the same base as all of the other airplanes that I'm going to fight a war with. They are going to come from all over the world, most likely. Some of them will have been uh, in the air for 10, 15 hours uh, when they show up to, uh, to the war. And, you know, I may have just taken off 30, 45 minutes ago and, uh, and gotten there. So, uh, having these geographically separated units, 
although it does make it more difficult to get some questions answered by those folks because I can't go down and, and talk to them face to face, it it adds a uh, it adds an aspect of realism to what a real high end fight is going to look like. Right. I'm glad you brought that up because I know we've talked to several Navy pilots and, you know, I come from a Navy background where that air wing is on that carrier. And yes, a lot of times, especially in the larger conflicts, we'll mix strike packages from different carriers. But by and large, they're flying in smaller elements and they're all right there on that carrier and they can do that face-to-face coordination you're talking about. But that's not the case for the Air Force, and it's also not the uh, case for joint ops, because very often now, when you look at the different capabilities, you know, the Navy has the, I believe, the only active jamming capability now in the Growler, and the Navy also, I should say, correspondingly, really relies on Air Force tanker assets, and that can just get split all the way down, even mission by mission, so I think it's critical, and it's you know, I don't know if that was deliberate as to why they did that or just a side benefit that goes with the drawback of not being there. But I think that's really critical to bring up what you pointed out. You know, flexibility is the key to air power. So take what could be a negative and make a positive out of it. Yeah. To answer your question about uh, about whether or not it, if, if it was intended for these guys to be geographically separated i have a i you know i obviously i didn't make this decision uh it's well well above my my pay grade <laughs> but uh i think that likely the reason that it was that the reason that decision was made was it was probably just too expensive and there wasn't enough manpower to move all of these airplanes to nellis one there's probably mm-hmm. not enough room at nellis to to house all of these airplanes on a permanent basis uh and then additionally uh some of these you know, like the B2 community is a small community. There's only right. one, well, there's two locations in the world that we that we have B2s, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, the B2 is only at Whiteman Air Force Base. And so, uh, you know, it would be a huge muscle movement and and a lot of manpower to have a permanent B2 presence at, at Nellis as well. Right. Absolutely. And then, you know, there's a whole bunch in the special operations forces that, you know, mm-hmm. any move there would take away from some synergy in other areas and won't go down that rabbit hole for right now. But that does lead me to uh, another aspect of this. So how are how do people go through the weapons school as a student? Do you go through as part of a unit? Do you go through as an individual student? Are you coming out of that and going back to your unit? What does that look like? And then after we, we talk about that, we'll talk about the instructor tour. Yeah, that's a great question. So a student shows up to weapons school on day one, and let's just, uh, for, for, for the sake of an example here, let's just say that the student is assigned to the unit that I was uh, instructing at, which is the 16th weapons squadron. And so a student shows up uh, on day one, we give him 16th weapons squadron patches, uh, and we make him feel like he is a part of, uh, of our uh, squad. He or she is a part of our squadron. And we take them from day one and they start to learn their specific airplane, in this case, the F-16 for the first couple of months. And then as we work through the course, they start to integrate more with other students from other of the of the weapon squadrons, the A-10 squadron, the intelligence squadron, you name it, all these different squadrons. And at the end, they all come together in these large exercises where they're integrating together. And so... They, they come as individuals and really they're kind of broken off in these individual squadrons of their uh, MDSs. Their and mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Yeah. And at the end of the course, I think they leave the end of the course. I know I did feeling like, okay, I came here in a class of 12 Viper guys and I left here it feeling a part of a, of, of a class of 120 people from all these different airplanes and nice. uh, different yeah. career fields. Does that kind of answer, answer that question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so you're coming from your parent squadron mid-tour or in-between tours? It could be both. Uh, for me, I came to, I, I came to, to Nellis as a student uh, mid-tour uh, from my tour at Shaw Air Force Base. Uh, okay. Sometimes you will, be, you will be moving bases and you'll go to weapon school in between moving bases, which uh, adds a, another dynamic of right. um, stress. Uh, to the yeah. whole mix. I mean, weapon school is hard enough. And then you throw in, Hey, you gotta, you gotta kind of have your family packed up and ready to move when you leave for weapon school. Cause as soon as you get done with weapon school, you know, you're going from Shire force base to, uh, to Japan for your next assignment. Right. So <laughs> some of those students you know, I'm glad that I wasn't in that boat. I just had to leave Shaw, drive out to Nellis and then drive right back to Shaw after I was done. But I, you know, a lot of students, a lot of students are literally in the middle of moving bases when they go to weapon school, which adds, uh, you know, a lot yeah. of, a lot of family stress on top of what's already a very stressful five and a half, six months. Yeah, no, it's uh, okay. So that was, that answers my next question, which is the length. So about five and a half to six months of training, which is, yep, five is and pretty five substantial. And a half months. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I compare and contrast that not to get off topic with uh, surface warfare in the Navy department head school where, Everyone goes to Rhode Island for six months and, you know, there are no ships home ported in Rhode Island. So it's a guarantee that no one's staying there. You're definitely moving and it's a PCS oh, yeah. move, but yeah, we won't go down that, that road, but I get it. So that, yeah, that's gotta be quite the challenge just for the school itself, but then for the guys who have to do that in between. So, yeah. so you come out in your patchware, right? Am I, am I using that term correctly? Uh, when you graduate, you're a patch wearer. Yep. Yeah. You're wearing, you're you're wearing wear. the Air Force Weapons School patch. Okay. And then you become, as I understand it, you are the planning assets for your squadron, right? Those are the guys they sort of turn to first to figure out mission planning? Yes, that's accurate. Uh, I, I really think of a, of a weapons officer when they leave as... Uh, almost having three different tiers of roles when they leave. And the first one is to be the best instructor in their specific airplane so that they can go back and teach their instructors in their squadron how to teach the younger guys in their squadron. So they're the instructor of instructors, which means that that they are phenomenal at flying their individual airplane. They're the best that they will ever be because the training is so good out at Nellis that their stick and rudder skills, the things that they're doing with their with their hands, the things that are going through their their mind when they're flying uh, the Viper or the Strike Eagle or the A ten or the U two or the B two, they are so good at executing that stuff that they now go teach the instructors out uh, in what we call the Combat Air Force to mm -hmm. to they go and teach those instructors to go teach the younger guys. So that's kind of the first the first uh, facet of the job of a weapons officer. The second job of a weapons officer when he gets out is 
he or she is the person who is building scenarios for their squadron to fly off of so that their squadron is getting realistic training while they are at home station. So they're mission planning these, you know, semi, some of them are semi-large training exercises, home station, so that so that their squadron can get really valid training uh, while while being home and be ready to go uh, do the job if uh, if if they're called upon. So that's the second facet. The third facet is a weapons officer should be able to, at a moment's notice, leave whatever base they're at, go to a uh, a mission planning center of some kind, and walk into a room of hundreds of people from all different airplanes, branches, you know, Air Force, Army, Navy, cyber, space, all these different, uh, all these different uh, domains, uh, the weapons officer should be able to walk in the room and be able to bring all of those people together and all of their capabilities together to come up with a cohesive plan to go fight the biggest, baddest wars that our country may face in the future. Yeah, I think that last part, all of it is amazing. Uh, but I think that last part is something that is just fascinating to me because, you know, we're creating these, you know, warriors, these multi-domain warriors. They're not just experts in flying their plane. They're experts in how to make the battle force better. And I think that's one of the things that's going to keep us, has, has put us on top and will keep us on top even in future, you know, near peer or peer to peer engagements. Yeah, I agree with you, Scott. And I, I also think that, uh, you know, what's going to separate us from, from the adversary in the next big high end fight is going to be our ability to, as a force, take data in as it is happening and then adjust our plans and adjust our fires and bleep be flexible to meet the, what the enemy is actually presenting us. Cause you know, everybody knows uh, by playing sports or watching sports that, you know, the enemy or the other team has a significant vote in the <laughs> fight or the game plan that you are executing. And so, exactly. you know, yeah. as soon as, as soon as your plan meets first contact with the enemy, things start yeah. to change. And that's what separates us from, from everybody else is we have the ability to remain fl very flexible in, uh, in planning and executing. Right. right. No plan survives first contact with the enemy and, exactly and that's where right. we shine is, is responding. So to that end, is there a reach back facility almost where if you're deployed and maybe you're in the fight, you can reach back to the weapon school and say, Hey, you know, we're seeing this or we're wondering about this and they can put some skull sweat on it and come up with something. Is that something that gets done as well? That's a great question, Scott. That's absolutely the case. Uh, we basically have a hotline at the weapon school to all the individual squadrons, as well as, uh, as well as to the weapon school as a whole for guys who are deployed, guys and gals who are, who are deployed that are, that are maybe running into issues or have questions and they can call back and, uh, you know, as an example, back in 2014, when my squadron was deployed, uh, I was at a shot in the 77th fighter squadron. We were deployed to Jordan. We were flying in Iraq and Syria. And it was right when ISIS had the fight with ISIS had kicked off. And we were dropping a lot of weapons up in northern uh, Syria. And 
what we were finding is that a lot of our uh, a lot of our bombs were uh, not blowing up high order, which means they weren't functioning with a big boom like they were supposed to. It was more of like a soft boom, or some of them would actually even dud. And so we're like racking our brains on this. And our weapons officer at the time, a guy named uh, Keith Poker Moore, uh, he. You know, he's like, what is going on here? Do we have a bad lot of fuses? Are the fuses not functioning properly? Is it something with the actual actual bomb, uh, the way that these bombs are built? You know, because we were dropping some older yeah. bombs. Uh, they had they had new tail kits, new GPS tail kits, but we're dropping some bombs that were made in the Vietnam era, and yeah. you know they've been in storage since then. So. Poker picks up the phone, he calls back to the weapons school and talks to the targeting guys at the weapons school. And these are a couple of civilian guys who work in this targeting cell that are the smartest people in the world on how to get bombs down into mission spaces and make them blow up where they're supposed to blow up. And what they what we wound up finding out was the concrete in northern Syria is extremely hard. I can't remember uh, the the specifics of how hard it was, but it was so hard that it was that it was almost breaking our bombs apart before our bombs had the opportunity to blow up from the fuses saying hey it's time to blow up based on wow. the, yeah. based on what's called the functional delay of the uh, of the of some of the bombs that we were dropping and so with that knowledge that that concrete was so hard that actually drove a change in the loadout that we were carrying when we were downrange we went from carrying all 500 pound bombs to carry in some 2000 pound bombs so that we could get into some of these smaller buildings that were really hard concrete. Huh. That's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, for the listener, everyone thinks, well, a bomb hits the ground and it goes off. And even though you were talking, I don't know if it's milliseconds or microseconds, but very often there's, there's a delay there for different weapons effects. Right. So like in the Navy, we shoot, you know, point dead or point detonating shells because ships aren't armored now and, and we don't want the shell going through and not detonating, but sort of the opposite thing here where the bomb's breaking apart before there's a chance to detonate, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So some of these buildings that we were dropping on were not huge buildings. They were pretty small buildings. They were they were maybe two-story uh, two buildings, which normally with a two-story building, you know, if I want to, if I want the bomb to blow up down the first floor, you know, I just put a functional delay on it. We, we do functional delays in terms of milliseconds. So, you know, maybe I do a 15 millisecond functional delay. And that means from the first time that the bomb actually hits the top of the building, it will, the fuse starts its timer and it, and it times for 15 milliseconds before it actually starts the, uh, the detonation sequence. And so, yeah, we use these functional delays all the time to, to get bombs into places where where we need them to blow up. Another great example is a uh, is our bunkers. You know, bunkers that are buried underground. We can't just have the bomb blow up on top of the ground. It wouldn't do anything to to a, to a, uh, a bunker. And so, oftentimes we we will get the specifics of the bunker from the intelligence community, uh, tying them into uh, into the fight. They're a huge part of the fight and. You know, this is a great example when Intel comes to us and says, hey, you're assigned to target this this underground bunker. 
Well, me as a Viper pilot, I'd be like, okay, like how deep is the bunker? How big is the bunker? All of these different questions. And Intel probably already has all those answers. And now from those answers, I can go, all right, based on this bunker being, you know, 10 feet underground and being 20 feet wide and 30 feet long, these, this is how many bombs I need. This is how many, uh, how much functional delay uh, in terms of milliseconds I need to put on these bombs to get them to blow up actually where they're supposed to blow up. Yeah. And, and you're not figuring out the structure of how to do that on the fly because you've done it at the Webster school, right? That's the whole point of bringing everyone together is the Intel guys. They've got a, they've got a patchware with them. Who's like, Hey, we're going to need this data for, for the air crews. And you know what you need to be asking for and figuring out the whole weaponeering and the effects. Cause it's not just, okay. You know, building drop bomb. Yep. That's right. Awesome. So coming out as, you know, as a student, you go, you're a patchware with your squadron and I assume, you, you know, you've got to be a patchware to go back and be an instructor. What does that look like? What's the process and what's the tour length? Yeah. So, uh, you do have to be a patchware to go back and be, uh, an instructor and, uh, and sometimes our instructors go back there after I was only back, uh, at Shaw. Uh, for about six months before I went back to Nellis to be an instructor. So I had a pretty short uh, amount of time outside of the weapons school doing what we call a tier one assignment, which is being a squadron weapons officer. It's more common for guys to be a tier one or squadron weapons officer for 18 to 24 months before going back to uh, the weapons school. And a lot of that is driven off of timing and the, in the, in the manning needs at the weapons school, if the weapons school has a lot of, a lot of guys that are leaving because they're, you know, going off to their next assignment, they'll pull some, uh, some guys and gals in from their tier one assignments a little bit sooner. And that was kind of the, the, the uh, position that I was in is, uh, I graduated from weapons school. I went to Shaw and got pulled back six months later to, uh, to backfill, uh, some other instructors that were leaving. Okay. And then once you're there, what's that tour look like? How long till you're, uh, you know, I'd call it up on step from small boat days, but you know, how long till you're on the power curve in teaching and how long does your tour last? So it's about a, the weapon school assignment is, is, is ideally supposed to be, uh, somewhere around 24 months long. So just, just right at two years. So the first three to six months that you're at the weapon school you are in instructor learn mode. You're you're trying to learn how all these scenarios are developed and run from what we call a white force perspective. Uh, white force is the behind the scenes of of what's actually going to happen in the fight to show the students a desired learning objective that we want them to uh, to walk away from a mission uh, with. So the first three to six months is just trying to learn all of this white force stuff, all the behind the scenes coordination. So that first six months takes you through your first class as an instructor. Your second class as an instructor, you start to take on more of a lead instructor role in your specific squadron. So uh, you start to be the guy who is building scenarios behind the scenes for your squadron specifically. In this case, for me, it was the F-16 squadron or the 16th weapon squadron. And so that's really what's happening in your second class uh, at the weapon school, which would be uh, months six through 12 of being there. And so 
getting now into the second year of you being there or the third class uh, that you're there as an instructor, now you're kind of getting into the integration stuff. You're learning how the white force and behind the scenes coordination happens for these larger exercises where we're integrating all of these different capabilities and assets. Uh, because as you can imagine, building the scenarios for those and making sure that you know, all of the airplanes that we're fighting are in the right place at the right time. All of the surface to air missiles that we're fighting are shooting at people at the right time. You know, there's just a multitude of different things that have to be coordinated in order for the students to walk away from these with the right uh, learning uh, having happened. And so that's really your last uh, 12-ish months of the weapon school is learning how to run these behind uh, be, behind the scenes for the large high-end uh, fights and then running some of those large high-end fights from behind the scenes. Okay. And that, you know, that's important too, because it's not a pickup game here. These are planned scrimmages uh, to use the sports analogy again. And, you know, you need to, you know, the student can't know what's coming, but as a scenario planner, you need to make sure that you're giving the right looks to all the different people who get the looks, you know, say the meaning, you know, this this type of SAM, this type of launch, this type of intercept, so on and so forth. Yep, that's right. And to kind of illustrate how complex this is and how much time it takes, these larger exercises occur at the end of the weapon school course. Uh, so, you know, they, they occur between about month four and a half and month five and a half. And so the last 30 days really of weapon school. Well, these missions from a white force, white force perspective, these missions will be getting planned from day one of weapon school. And so there will be four, four and a half months of planning by the instructors of these missions before the students even see what the tactical problem is in the mission before they even start to do any mission planning or even think about going to fight this fight yeah. this problem. So very, very complex problems. Yeah. And then on top of that, you know, if it's that complex, I'm guessing you only get one, maybe two looks at the scenario during the course. So you've got maintainers who have to be on the ball. You've got supply guys who have to be on the ball. You know, the students have to be putting in their time to be a part of the exercise at the end, right? That's exactly right, Scott. The coordination goes well beyond just the students who are flying airplanes and doing the intelligence work and, and all that. Uh, we have to have the, the right maintainers that are there uh, on the ramps to keep the jets flying so that during these huge exercises, you know, we have enough airplanes that we can get airborne because, you know, as everybody knows, just like, uh, just like when your car breaks, vipers break, raptors break, yep. uh, A-10s break, everything breaks. And so, uh, you know, when you when you put this much effort into planning a huge exercise, what a shame it would be if if you got out to the 60 different airplanes on the ramp and started all of them and only 35 of them were able to take off because yeah. of, of maintenance issues. You know, so there's a huge maintenance maintenance uh, maintenance footprint out out there taking care of the jets and making sure we can get airborne to execute this. So, you know. Mentioning the students a second ago and their component, what's the attrition rate like for students going through the program? For the Viper portion, I think it's probably about 10 to 10 to 15%. Uh, I was there for eight classes. 
which was about 80 students total. And I think we were, I think we lost maybe eight to 10 or so. So it's right around eight, it's right around 10%. All right. So with that, let's, let's dive into F-16 weapons school specifically. Let's, you know, sort of a broad brush of the syllabus. And then, you know, let's go into some in the cockpit stories, uh, you know, the listener by this time, by this point in the series understands some air to air concepts. So if we want to touch on a story or two there, that'd be great. And, but I'd really like to dive into air to ground and specifically seed. And I'll let you define what that is for the listener. Cause I think that is a, at least in the general public, unheralded mission that is critical to all sorts of mission success, not just aviation, but, uh, you know, strike, meaning Tomahawk mission success, special operations forces. So let's just jump in here. Let's talk about the syllabus a little bit and then go through those areas with some uh, in-cockpit stories. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, So the first part of the course is really the first two to two and a half months of the course is all MDS specific. And so uh, we'll just frame this, the rest of this combo as we are talking only uh, about the F-16 portion of the weapon school. And so I show up as a student on day one of, uh, of F-16 weapon school. I walk in the door and uh, and the first mission that I'm going to start flying is BFM, basic fighter maneuvers, 1v1 vis- within visual range maneuvering, where I'm, as the student, going to start off offensive for uh, for my first flight, and I'm going to try to kill my instructor. And he's going to do everything he can to try to stay alive. He's going to do everything he can to get out of the way of my gunshots, uh, defeat my missile attacks on him, uh, all of that. And so that's uh, that's kind of the first week of weapon school as the student walks in, and he's uh, he's thrown right into flying offensive BFM. Uh, it usually takes the student a couple of tries to pass offensive BFM. So, you know, two, three times to pass that first ride, and then they move on to defensive BFM and then on to high aspect BFM. High aspect BFM being when two airplanes, uh, we drive out about five miles from each other, we turn and point at each other, and then we pass uh, just like the scenes you see in like the first Top Gun, where uh, where the two where the F fourteen is merging uh, with the uh, right. with uh, with the adversaries, and uh, you know that's high aspect. So that right. takes us through the first two weeks of uh, of the course. Okay, let, let me uh, just throw out there. So you're starting uh, as a student in offensive BFM, which you know you're not coming to the merge. You're set up essentially behind the instructor, right? And you're trying to go, you know, guns or missiles on him. And you said it's a good two or three rides before you're successful at that, which I think speaks to the proficiency of the weapons instructors and what you guys are teaching out there, right? Because you're set up in, in the position a fighter pilot wants to be in, and this guy's turning around on you. Yeah, th- pretty much. Uh, the, the student starts in offensive BFM. He starts anywhere between 3,000 and 9,000 feet behind the instructor. And mm-hmm. he's in a position where, where he should be able to every single time he says fights on, which these fights only last somewhere between 30 seconds and about two minutes. He should be able to, every time he says fights on, be able to shoot me with his, uh, with his gun and get enough bullets on me to call a kill. That oftentimes doesn't happen because to your point, Scott, the instructors, we spend the time in between 
uh, are the, in between students being there uh, for class. We have about a three to four week break. And we spend a lot of that time flying BFM with each other. And so we get very, very proficient at flying BFM. And BFM is a, is a game of uh, inches. And it is won or lost by, by the smallest mistakes. And uh, so we at that level with that, with that kind of proficiency are able to really exploit any mistake that the student is making. And if the student makes a mistake, even if he starts out behind us on offense, it is oftentimes that small mistake will result in him not being able to kill us. Right. So do you remember your first uh, BFM hop at the school? I do. Yeah, I do. And, uh, uh, <laughs> maybe something we don't want to revisit or, well, I, I mean, it was, uh, it was, uh, I, I, I actually passed my first BFM ride at the schoolhouse and, uh, nice. it's funny because yeah, I, I mean, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. So <laughs> <laughs> I showed up, I, I, you know, I was super nervous just like everybody else. And, uh, we had 12 guys in our class and uh, most of the guys, you know, when you go to weapon school, you do this big spin up that takes two to three months prior to you going to weapon school. You're flying a lot of BFM back at your home station and weapons officers are known for being very aggressive in the airplane. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of students show up at weapon school and they go, all right, I'm going to be super aggressive when on my offensive BFM ride, and I'm going to kill him with the gun really quickly, which oftentimes results in if if you take a really aggressive gunshot, if you don't execute it very well or do what's called a reposition at uh, the exact right time, you will oftentimes fly by the guy that's on defense, and he will now be the offender, and you've now become the defender, which is yep. not good when you're flying offensive BFM if you if you turn it into <laughs> defensive BFM. Yeah. So so there were two guys in our in our class of, of 12 guys who uh, did not take that approach. I was one of those guys. I was like, eh, I'm just going to tame back my aggressiveness just a little bit. I'm going to rein my aggressiveness back in a little bit. I'm just going to go to what we call the control zone, which is just basically being behind the defender, but not shooting him with the gun just yet. Because as soon as we start to shoot him with the gun, our range from us to the defender starts to break down really quickly. So it can go from 3,000 feet of slant range, which is you know a little under a half a mile, and it can co- collapse down to 1,000 feet very, very quickly within a couple of seconds as I'm trying to take my gunshot. And so... My, I, I made the decision to rein in that aggressiveness. I, I just went to the control zone. I would sit in the control zone for five, 10, 15 seconds. And then I would, and then I would go in for a gunshot. And so there were two of us in the class that weren't really aggressive with our gunshots. And there were two of us that passed BFM on the first time. <laughs> so, Good job. Hey. <laughs> yeah. We were all kind of making fun of each other the night before our first uh, BFM ride. You know, some of the guys in our class were like, you know, you, you wuss, you got to go to guns like ASAP. And I was like, you know, me and the other guy were like, no, we'll just, we, you know, we'll just go to what we call, it's called lag BFM. We'll just go to lag and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we'll hang out back in lag for, uh, for a couple of seconds until, you know, the, the, the shots, right. You know, we, yeah. and you know, the two of us that, that, that weren't giving each other shit, uh, that weren't giving <laughs> everybody else shit for, uh, for not, for not being not aggressive enough. Uh, we, we were the ones that passed. So, 
walk softly and carry a big stick. That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, sounds like the fighter pilot version of uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. That's exactly right. Yep. All right. So so you go through the, the defensive, you go to the offensive, then you said you go to the high aspect. Let's let's take from there. Either either, you know, we can talk about high aspects more, move to the next phase of the course. High aspect. Uh, I can just touch real briefly on high aspect. High aspect is a really difficult mission for the students to do well on because it is very dynamic. And uh, I mean, you meet and pass 180 degrees out from the other airplane and that airplane's doing 500 knots. You're doing 500 knots. You pass at a thousand knots of closure and you know, then you're turning and max performing the airplane, uh, to, you know, to its max capability to try to get missile shots off on, uh, off on the adversary. And that's when we start to bring in really prioritizing shooting, uh, air to air missiles, aim nine X's specifically, because the aim nine X is a very good short range, what we call a off boresight weapon where we don't have to have the adversary directly off of our nose to shoot that weapon. And so, uh, we start to really emphasize using uh, using AIM nine X's and AIM one twenties in these short range, within visual range, high aspect fights to uh, to get a quick kill. Okay, so a little bit of a contrast to what we've heard before in the series, which was you know very uh, rooted in the eighties, nineties, and early two thousands with a much more regimented the Sparrows, your BVR, and and getting into the you know dozens of miles missile then into your Sidewinder, you're using both of your missile assets right now, the Sidewinder and the AIM-120 in the visual arena, and they they just give you a different capability, right? One being infrared and one being radar guided. That's right. The AIM-9, the Sidewinder, generally has better capabilities at at really short ranges. You know, think down to a couple thousand uh, a couple thousand feet as a minimum range, whereas you know the AIM-120's bread and butter is really for shooting beyond visual range shots, but it also has a pretty robust short range uh, capability as well. Right. Uh, so unlike the Sparrow that we talked about in a previous episode, which basically needed the parent aircraft to illuminate the target with radar, the uh, the AIM-120 basically guides itself. It's, it's a wholly active radar guided missile, correct? That's exactly right. Yep. Okay. Um, so when you're doing this, who are you flying against? Is it is it other guys from that 16th weapon squadron in the case of the F-16 flying F-16s at this point? Yeah, you're flying as a student. You're flying against a uh, against an instructor from the 16th weapon squadron. Okay, so right now we're you know not that this is easy, but you know crawl, walk, run. You're not adding in. Hey, it's a different type of airframe with a different sort of capability. You're fighting somebody who's flying a plane and you know its capabilities because we talked with crunch in an earlier episode about you know you have to optimize your aircraft's capabilities you know is it a is it a rate fighter is it a radius fighter is it that in comparison to to who you're fighting so at this point it's a known quantity right I, i imagine that changes as the syllabus goes on it is a known quantity for that for those first couple of weeks of bfm uh, oftentimes at the end of our BFM phase, we will give the students the opportunity to go out and fight something else. Sometimes it's a Raptor. Sometimes it's a Strike Eagle. Sometimes it's an Eagle 
sometimes it's hornets. Uh, and so that is, that's a really good opportunity for the students to be able to go see a different site picture presented from a different airplane and be able to really think about their BFM game plan and to optimize the different portions of our, or the different capabilities of the Viper specifically to, to win a fight against another airplane. Okay. Right. Cause the, I mean, the F-16 with the possible exception of the F-22, I think is still seen as their premier, you know, close range dogfighter in, in at least the Western world, if not the world altogether, but you know, strengths and weaknesses, right? Cause I know that, uh, even a couple Viper guys I know feel that the, the Hornet has, uh, better alpha characteristics, right? So you got to not yep. get dragged low and slow against a Hornet, right? You got to fight from your strengths. That's right. Yep. The Viper likes to fight fast and it likes to fight what's called a, a rate fight. And so the Viper likes to fight BFM at, at 300 plus knots, whereas the Hornet likes to fight BFM and the Raptor likes to fight BFM a lot of times at much lower speeds because they're not alpha limited like the uh, F-16 is. The F-16 is limited to 25 units of, uh, of alpha. The airplane will not do anything more than that or it will go out of control. It will depart flight, depart, okay. It will depart control flight. And so the computer is, uh, it, no matter what the pilot is telling the airplane to do, the computer is saying, no, you idiot, if we do more than 25 <laughs> degrees, we're gonna fall out of the sky. So we're not gonna do I'm that. I'm not gonna let you do that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, the Hornet and the Raptor, they obviously have a computer as well in their flight control system, but their the aerodynamics of their airplane allow it to to not be so limited in AOA. And uh, okay. so they can, they're, they're much better suited at fighting uh, in the slower regimes than a, than a Viper is. And so, and we'll talk in a future episode about aggressors and adversary squadrons and how they model that. Cause right now we're we're still talking about U.S. aircraft, but then, you know, real world, it's not going to be U.S. aircraft. It's going to be, you know, foreign aircraft, potentially, I guess it could be U.S. built uh, through strange change of events. Like, yeah, I don't know, uh, Iranian F-4s or F-14s. But sure. the point being, there's all these different aircraft with all these different capabilities. When you did yours, did you have any particular adversary that wasn't an F-16 that was either notably difficult or notably uh, easy to fight against? I think what's most notable is, uh, is the F-35. When I fight F-35s, uh, a lot of the listeners have probably read stuff online about this F-35 is a piece of crap because, uh, you know, it's brand new, but it can get its, it can get its butt kicked by a much older airplane. And I can personally attest to that being 100% correct. The F-35 is not good <laughs> at at fighting within visual range uh, dogfighting. It's just not. It wasn't designed for that, but it is still an incredible airplane. So fighting an F-35 in uh, in BFM is uh, is usually, you know, it, uh, flying a Viper against an F-35, as long as the Viper pilot is, uh, is decent, you know, he's going to, He's going to probably smoke that F thirty five ninety plus percent of the time. Yep, and we'll we'll talk later. Uh, I think probably the last episode of the series about fifth gen, and you know, I think the phrase is if you've come to the merge in an F thirty five, you're doing it wrong. So I guess the the point is, you know, are you good enough to get in on the F thirty five? And if you are, you're probably going to get them. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay. All right, so that's the that's the air to air, or at least that portion. What comes next? Let's see. That is uh, that is the 
BFM portion. Then we go into ACM, which is air combat maneuvering. And that is two uh, blue guys against one red guy. And we take a lot of the same stuff that we were that we were teaching students in BFM and what they were practicing in BFM with, with individual range maneuvering, a lot of lift vector power and G to max perform their airplane. We just bring another blue aircraft into it. So this is transferable to... Uh, you know, a high-end fight where I'm cruising along with my wingman. I'm in line abreast two to four miles uh, away from him, line abreast, and we get jumped by uh, some enemy airplane. All of a sudden, like, I look behind my my wingman, and there's a, there's a bad guy two miles behind him trying to shoot him. And now we got to figure out, okay, we've got a bad guy behind us by two miles. we got to figure out how to, one, defeat his uh, shots that are coming into us and also kill him uh, as quickly as possible. And so that, uh, that, that portion of the course takes about uh, probably another two weeks or so. And that's a really fun portion of the course because, you know, instead of just be, there being two airplanes that are maneuvering in this small piece of sky with each other, now it's three airplanes that are maneuvering in this small piece of sky with each other. And so it's a lot of fun to fly. So that, that takes us, uh, like I said, about another two weeks. And then we jump into what's called uh, defensive counter air. And uh, defensive counter air is kind of the, the student's first time getting to fly beyond visual range uh, air-to-air stuff uh, at the weapon school. So at this point, we're three to four weeks into the weapon school syllabus, and now the students are flying in four ships, four Vipers on the blue side, and their whole job in life is for a 25 to 30-minute period of time to defend a point on the ground from enemy aircraft trying to bomb it and so you know during a 30 minute period against those four vipers there may be 16 20 22 different airplanes that come try to either shoot us down or try to bomb our target and we got to protect the target and uh, and keep it alive for the for the whole uh for the whole fight okay and so I'm going to I'm going to guess and this is going to come from my ASW or NI submarine warfare background when you're fighting a submarine and protecting something else killing the opponent is not the only way to win simply keeping him from killing the target is a win and I imagine if you're fighting for 20 to 30 minutes weapons loadouts are a consideration so you know you're not looking to kill every one of those incoming threats right you're defending the target very literally not not killing targets, you're defending your asset. Yeah, that's right. That's a great point, Scott, because if 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 I can deter somebody from coming to bomb our target, I won. If I don't right. if I take my four F sixteens out there and we never shoot a single missile or a single bullet, but nobody bombs the target because every time we every time we lock them up with our radar, they get they get spiked and they uh, you know, they 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 turn around, we won. It's great. You know, and so yeah. Uh, that's exactly right. Un- uh, most of the time at weapons school, the, the the bad guys don't turn around. They're coming for the, they're they're coming for the target because <laughs> yeah. they want to come back into the debrief and go, yeah, we bombed your target, man. You guys suck. Yeah, we got you. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're bringing it pretty hard. So the DCA that we fly at the weapons school, there's a lot of mountains and stuff, and so uh, out there where we fight, and so a lot of. Uh, the guys who are carrying bombs, so there'll be two different types of airplanes on the uh, on the bad guy side, on the red side. There'll be 
uh, some escort fighters who are air-to-air fighters, and their whole job in life is to protect the aircraft on the red side that are carrying the bombs. They want to get the guys of the bombs to the target. And so a lot of times these guys of the bombs will be flying 100 feet off the deck through the mountains and uh, you know, it's one hard for our radars to find guys, uh, to find airplanes that are down in the weeds, especially in mountainous terrain. And so uh, one challenge is finding them with the radar. And then the second challenge is trying to go kill somebody at 100 feet off the ground is very difficult. Missiles aren't uh, usually as good at shooting down in that type of environment. And a lot of times when we get there, we are probably close to being or not already out of air-to-air missiles. And now we got to go shoot them with uh, with a gun, which means i got to go get within like 3,000 feet of them, 2,000 feet of them, and shoot them with my gun. And he is – his only, only job in life at that point is to run along the, the desert at 100, 200, 300 feet and try to get his bombs to the target. And so it's uh, it's it's high adrenaline going down there to, to, to gun them. It's, uh, it's really hard to do, and uh, but it's it's really cool to do. Uh, once you yeah. successfully do it, you kind of come away from that like engagement. You're like, man, that was awesome. That's like, <laughs> the, that's like the only place in the world where you get to experience uh, that type of, that type of fighting. Yeah. So once you've done your DCA, how do you step into the next phase? Is it, do you then learn how to be those escort fighters? Do you move to being the strike fighter? Uh, we do. Next? We go into a, sh- we go into a short escort phase. Uh, so the escort phase is we switch roles and now the blue guys are trying to go bomb the enemies, uh, something in, in, in enemy territory. And so now us, we're not carrying any bombs. We're just carrying air-to-air weapons. And our whole job in life is to, let's say, we want to get a B-1 from where we are to enemy territory to drop his bombs and then uh, and then come back home. And so we figure out how to escort that B-1 into bad guy land, keep him safe the whole time, shoot down all the all the bad guys that uh, that are trying to shoot that B-1 down, and then get everybody out of out of dodge without uh, without taking any losses. And probably worth mentioning at that point that when you're doing that, it's over enemy controlled territory. So you're not just looking out for that air to air threat. You're looking for the surface to air threat as well. Just adding more complexity. Yeah. At that point in the course, we, we haven't started adding a, a, okay. a very robust surface to air threat. Cause we really are still in, we're still in the crawl, walk, run phase. I mean, we're just now, we're just now bridging from crawl to walk. Okay. So we are teaching the students to fly beyond visual range, air-to-air missions, and we are focusing only on that. As soon as we start to bring in surface-to-air missiles shooting at them, it, it gets a lot more complex and there's a lot more consideration. So we want to make sure that they understand how to do that, that simple air-to-air, beyond visual range stuff before we start bringing in more enemy capability. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to make sure that they've got the fundamentals nailed before they go to the next or layer the next. It'd be like taking somebody it'd be like taking somebody skiing and it's their first time going skiing and uh you know they go down a green on their first run and you know they only fall, you know, 14 times and so you're like, "Oh, they're they're doing okay." So Let's take him down a, uh, let's take him, let's try Let's try a little black diamond and see how it goes. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> yeah. they're going to, they're going to totally fall on their face. Cause there's just, there's just way too much going on for them. So, you know, this is yeah. taking them from that green and, uh, taking them into a little bit of a, 
an easy blue and making sure that they can do this uh, before we throw anything else on. So the escort phase only lasts a week, week and a half. And uh, so this takes us to about month and a half, about six weeks into the, into the course. So now we do a complete change of gears and now we go totally into bomb dropping uh, without an air to air threat. And so now we're teaching the students how to the basics of bomb dropping. They already know the basics of bomb dropping, but we just want to make sure that they're really good at understanding and executing the basics of bomb dropping. Dumb bombs, uh, we drop some GBU-12s with them. We drop some JDAMs with them, some uh, some GBU-31s or 38s. And uh, we make sure that they understand the ins and outs of how the bombs work, how to choose different fuse settings for the bombs, and then how to actually go drop the bombs from their airplane and have them hit exactly on the earth where they want their bombs to hit. So the various GBUs and the JDAMs were looking at different types of guidance packages, right? There, You've got right. uh, laser, optical, uh, GPS, I imagine, and they're becoming proficient in all those, right? That's exactly right. Yep, the GBU-12s are laser-guided bombs, so we're shooting a laser from our targeting pod on our airplane, and that bomb is seeking that laser spot on the ground. A uh, JDAM, a Joint Direct Attack Munition, is has a GPS uh, guidance tail kit on uh, on that bomb, so we put in GPS coordin- coordinates to that uh, to that bomb, and that bomb then, once it comes off our jet, navigates itself to those coordinates. And so we're teaching them, teaching them all the ins and outs of, of the specifics of how these weapons uh, work. Once again, very, very part task trainer. We're back in the crawl phase of air-to-ground stuff. Very, very uh, simple ground stuff. And then we go into our next phase, which is called close air support. And close air support is the mission that we've all come to love as Viper pilots over the last two decades. And it is flying in close coordination with friendly guys on the ground who are in a fight with, uh, with bad dudes on the ground. And so we're teaching our students how to, how to drop bombs in very close coordination with friendly guys on the ground. One, to make sure that we don't have any friendly casualties, what we call fratricide. Me, uh, or one of us dropping a bomb too close to our friendlies and 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 taking out one of our friendlies. So we're teaching them how to mitigate that to the next extent possible, and we're also teaching them how to maximize their firepower against the enemy in a very close to the friendlies uh, environment. And so we're talking, uh, you know, in in real world, we're we're potentially dropping bombs, you know, within a couple hundred yards of friendly forces. And, uh, you know, if we're shooting bullets at, uh, at enemy fighters on the ground, we're probably strafing enemy fighters uh, sometimes as close as inside of 100 yards from friendly guys on the ground. Yeah, friendly lines, friendly positions. And that's, I mean, yeah. depending on, on your exposure to stuff like this, you know, a couple hundred yards may sound like a long ways, but it's it's not. We're talking about explosive ordnance. We're talking about things that are meant to have a destructive radius, uh, you know, circular error of, of probability and, and to destroy things within a radius. So this is this is close. That is what danger close means, right? That's exactly right. Danger close is a distance that inside of this distance the friendlies have a much higher probability of getting injured by your uh, by your weapon exploding, and so these danger close numbers they they're they're slightly different for each weapon that we uh, that we drop. 
but they're they're anywhere between about 95 meters and uh, 300-ish meters. You know, to illustrate, I remember when I was first learning about this and I was like, man, it kind of seems like 300 meters away would be like kind of a long way. I mean, that's like over three football fields. But when you think about it from the bomb is coming off of a Viper from from 15 or 20,000 feet, that bomb is coming off of my airplane from three or four miles away. And so, you know, 300 meters when you're talking employing from three or four miles away is not very far. Right. Pretty darn close. I imagine you have to take into account the fact that even if you're using a precision guided weapon, it could fail. So you need to launch this in a way that if it does, it's, it's not going to, or at least you're mitigating the, the risk of it doing something you don't want it to do. Yeah, that's right. That's where we bring into consideration our attack axis in relation to where our friendlies are, just in case the bomb goes stupid and doesn't do what we tell it to do. Yep. So that takes us through the, uh, the cast phase. And uh, once we're done with the cast phase, at this point in the course, we're probably two to just over two months into the course. And we've taken the students from the crawl phase of the air-to-air side of things into uh, the walk phase. We've kind of bridged the gap from the crawl to walk phase of, of air-to-air. And we've also taken students from the crawl phase in, uh, in air-to-ground, just teaching them how to drop these basic weapons. And we're now into the walk phase and a little bit into the run phase as well with the close air support stuff because that stuff can be really complicated. So to this point in the course, we have been doing air-to-air or air to ground. We haven't been combining those two things at all. Now in the course, we jump into integrating those things still just in the F-16 unit. And so now what we jump into is we have eight F-16s on the blue air side. Four of those F-16s on the blue air side are bomb droppers, uh, and they're going into enemy territory to drop bombs on uh, a bunker or some kind of hardened shelter something that's really hard to get a bomb uh, into. And the other four F-16s on the blue side are seed fighters, suppression of enemy air defenses. And so, Scott, this is where we start to bring in uh, the surface-to-air missile threats as well as the air-to-air threats from the enemy. And so now, in addition to just fighting the red aircraft, the students are now having to figure out how to stay alive against SA-2s, SA-3s, SA-6s, SA-11s, SA-17s, all shooting at them while they're trying to drop bombs. Mm -hmm. So this is the first part of the course where we really start to get into mission planning with the students because you can't just go out and take off without any mission planning and go put all eight of these F-16s in the right piece of sky at the right time to get these bombs off of the right jets into the right places on the earth. And so oftentimes these missions, we'll we'll mission plan them the day prior for about eight hours, and then we'll come back the next day and uh, and actually go fly those missions and uh, then come back and debrief them. And so I mentioned getting into SEED, uh, suppression of enemy air air defenses. And so The whole purpose of SEED is to get guys who are dropping bombs. We'll refer to those uh, airplanes as the strikers. Our whole purpose in life is to get the strikers to a target area so that they can drop their bombs and then get them out back to good guy land, back to safe territory without them taking any losses. Because we can do all the mission planning in the world for these strikers to go drop their bombs. 
we could do months and months and months of mission planning to go drop bombs on a really, really high value target somewhere in the world. But if we can't get the strikers, if the strikers get shot down by something before getting there, all of that mission planning was a huge waste of time. Mm-hmm. Right. And so yep. the whole purpose of the seed guys is one as a seed, as a seed guy, I want the service to air missiles and the red air fighters to be shooting at me. I want to be the one to get shot. So I put myself out in front of the guys who are dropping bombs and I am ideally getting shot by, uh, by the, the Su 27s that we're fighting or the MiG 29s that we're fighting or, or the Su 35s that we're fighting. And I'm also ideally getting shot by the SA sixes out there, the SA 11s. And so, uh, I am basically making myself as a seed fighter, uh, a decoy or bait so that, the, so that the strikers are not getting shot at during, uh, during their bomb dropping. Does that make sense? Yeah. But you're also a decoy that, that has a bite himself, right? Yep, we do. We have, we carry a missile called a harm, which is a high speed anti-radiation missile. And that missile is designed to go seek out, uh, seek out these surface to air missile systems. And so if an SA, let's, just take an SA-6, for instance. An SA-6 turns on, and it starts to shoot a missile either at me or at the strikers. Well, I see that SA-6 turn on, hopefully, uh, with some avionics in my uh, F-16 as a seed fighter. And now I can take, I can shoot a harm back at that SA-6 and hopefully kill that SA-6 with that uh, with that harm missile. Right. Now, couple of things are going on there, right? You've got, you've got some time distance considerations, uh, you know, who shoots first, whose missiles faster. The SAM operator obviously has the ability to detect your launch of that harm. And I know they used to be able to turn off their radars to try and spoof your missile. Uh, talk to us about how that's changed over time as we've improved missiles and, and what that game looks like now between the, the SAM operator and you and the seed aircraft. Yeah, so the harm is seeking the RF energy that that the that the SAM system is putting out while it is shooting a missile. And so, if the SAM is not uh, actively uh, shooting a missile or at least using its radar to look for airplanes, the harm will not be able to guide off of it. And so, one of the one of the challenges for us is when we shoot that missile. A lot of times, the enemy knows that we have just shot a harm at whatever we're shooting it at an SA six in this case, and so they'll oftentimes turn off their SA-6 at that point, and then our harm won't be able to hit it. Well, that sucks because our harm probably is going to miss that SA-6. But all is not lost because we did achieve our effect of we don't want the strikers to get shot down by uh, the SA-6. And so if the SA-6 is forced to turn off because we shot a harm at it, it can no longer guide its missile to uh, the airplane that it's shooting. And so its missile goes stupid as well. So our, our harm doesn't hit the SA-6, but the SA-6 missile doesn't hit the strikers. And so uh, it's it's a win for us uh, right. at, that, at that point in time. Right, because as we talked about, your whole mission is keeping the keeping the attention of the red force off of your strikers. And as you were describing that, you know, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna troll myself out there as bait. Uh, I want the MIGs looking at me. I want the Sequoias looking at me. I want the SA6s, the SA11s looking at me. You know, there's a history in this going back to the wild weasels in Vietnam, and and they had a 
know, motto that evolved into a patch. Uh, could you tell the listener a little bit about that? Because I think hearing that story right after hearing this description puts it in much better context than just seeing the patch. Yeah, sure. Uh, so this is uh, this is back in Vietnam, and uh, and a guy named uh, I believe his name is Jack Donovan. He's a uh, he's an electronic weapons officer uh, in I think it was B fifty twos. Anyway, so all these people in Vietnam, all these fighter pods are getting shot down by these surface to air missile systems, and we're like, man, we got to do something different. Like we got to figure out how to how to how to counter this, and. Their way to counter it was they were going to have uh, these B-52 uh, electronic warfare officers go fly in the back seat of, I uh, can't remember the airplane. I think it was an F-4. It might have been, uh, I can't remember uh, specifically. I think but the first anyway, one was they're like F-100s even. I think you're right, Scott. I think, uh, yep, yeah, I think you're right. So they go, hey, you guys are going to go sit in the back seat uh, with this fighter pilot flying this airplane in front of you. He's going to go find the surface to air missiles and get them to shoot it, shoot at you guys. And then when they shoot at you guys, then you guys are going to be able to take the electronic signals from them, the RF energy, and be able to kind of locate them and then go kill them. And the guys, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the EWOs uh, that are going to sit in the back seat with this fighter pilot up front, taking them to get intentionally shot at, they go, you got to be shitting me. <laughs> and so the motto is YGBSM, uh, you know, for obvious reasons there. <laughs> yeah, that's always a great story and, and points out a couple things. One is those guys who, who were doing it at first. Yeah, these are EWOs sitting in the back of a plane that they are not physically flying. Uh, much respect to them for doing that. But right. now you guys yeah. are doing this solo. You're, you know, are because F-16 squadrons, I believe you know, have specialties. An F-16 can do just about any mission another F-16 can, but you guys specialize and even your seed squadrons are single seat. You're not doing this with an EWO now. That's right. Yep. Uh, the, the avionics have advanced enough that we don't need an EWO in the back seat to help us out with it. Sometimes it would be nice to have a second set of eyes, but uh, for the most part, we're doing it. Uh, we, we can do it. We can do it just fine on uh, as a single as a single pilot now. Yeah. So when you're doing that, and and I should ask, did you do seed? What was your specialty in your what what was your squadron specialties in your combat air force squadrons? Did you have a seed mission specifically? It it was when I was stationed at Shaw. That was a that was an entirely a seed base. Uh, although okay. we were doing some close air support, a lot of close air support while we were there as well. Okay. And when you were doing that, how much integration is there with say uh, you know I guess that's right on the cusp of the time the prowler was, was being rolled out of service and, and the growler was really hitting its stride is, is the wild weasel. I don't know if you guys still call it that, but is the seed mission an integrated mission with electronic warfare craft, or is it a more of a lone wolf thing? Yeah. The wild weasel mission is, is very much uh, integration dependent to be successful because like like I alluded to a couple of minutes ago about that in that SA-6 example, that SA-6 has to be turned on and trying to shoot something or at least looking for something to shoot in order for my harm to hit it. And so the longer I can keep that thing on, that SA-6 on, the better my chance of hitting it with a, with a, with a harm is. And so there are some things that we can do with – uh, with some electronic jamming capabilities that we have in a EC-130 or an EA-18G growler that can make those make those SAMs turn on 
and not be able to target or not be able to target the strikers or for it to take them longer to target the strikers. And so if I can lengthen the Sam's kill chain, if I can take it from instead of instead of their radar being on to being on for 20 seconds to complete a, a an engagement and shoot a striker down, if I can make their radar be on for 45 seconds or 60 seconds, then I uh, have a much longer time period where I can shoot a harm and my harm actually get to the target because as I shoot my harm from my F-16, I may be 5, 10 miles away from this, from this SAM. And it's going to take my harm 15, 30, 45 seconds to get to that SAM. So I, I want to lengthen that time that that SAM is what we call radiating or turned on, mm-hmm. but I don't want him to be able to shoot down the strikers and so uh, during that time frame. And so it's very important uh, that, uh, that that's a capability that the EA-18G really brings to the table is to get those guys to be able to to turn on and not be able to target the, uh, the strikers very successfully. Yeah. Now, in addition to that, do you guys either on the, on the seed aircraft itself or with other assets, do you bring weapons other than harm, uh, in, because, you know, for a listener who's never seen them before, uh, there are some, there are some mobile vehicles that, that are an all in one, you know, fire control radar and missile launcher, but, Yep. Many, I, I as a non-expert would hazard to say most, are more systems of vehicles or systems of platforms where you have you know one or more radar vehicles and then a multitude of launcher vehicles arrayed around them. So you can get the radar, but you also want to get the launchers if you can. Is that something that, that you're doing directly from the seat aircraft? Or are you clearing the way for another striker? How does that work? That's accurate to an extent. Uh, Scott, it, it, it really depends on, uh, our, our primary job in life is to kill the radars. If we kill the radars, uh, most of these missile systems are incapable of functioning. So it doesn't matter if they have a hundred more missiles out there. If they have no radar to guide those missiles, those, those missiles are useless. Now, some of the newer technologies from the, from enemy systems, uh, are, they can take missiles that that let's say I kill a radar that is that is next to next to uh, a bunch of a bunch of actual surface to air missiles. I kill that radar. Those surface to air missiles may be able to 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 be guided by another radar that's close by. And so killing all the radars is the primary goal in life. If we kill all the radars and no radars are on, uh, and thus no uh, no radars are trying to find our strikers uh, or spiking our strikers. Then, if I see more missiles, or if we see more missiles out there on the ground, uh, then we'll go kill those as well. And we can start to bring in some other assets to help us do that. Uh, for for one, the strikers who are going to kill, let's say in this situation, a underground bunker, as soon as they drop their bombs on their on their uh, target, if they've killed their target, I can now those guys. I don't they don't have to fully focus on dropping their bombs on their uh, on their frag target. So now if I have a target, a pop-up target that I that that uh, you know I can I can have those guys drop on uh, on our way out of the target area, I may I may be able to do that. So now the strikers, as soon as they've dropped uh, their weapon on their on their priority one target, now become, almost like a miniature seed asset. I'm using their weapons to kill some more things as a seed fighter. 
Okay. So it's, uh, you know, two thoughts there. One is it's sort of the air defense version of how A-10s and Apaches and our armor guys go for the command tanks, right? Knock out the command and control yep. node. Exactly and, right. Right. You, you take away the enemy's uh, capability. And then and maybe this is a, a nice bridge is that then, you know, when your strikers come off target, if they haven't expended all their ordnance, like you said, you're now quarterbacking them into seed missions, which is, I don't think it's truly a FAC A mission, but I guess it's analogous. So that brings up the question of, you know, we're talking, we've talked about close air support. You know, is the F-16 considered a FAC A platform or are you more a tool that, that FAC A's are going to roll into the fight? We are a FAC A platform. I would say probably 10 10% of F-16 pilots are FAC-A qualified. It's a whole separate qualification that extends uh, well beyond just the F-16. Uh, it's a joint qualification. Uh, so uh, in this situation, FAC-A is really uh, FAC-A, and for everybody who doesn't know, Ford Air Controller Airborne. A FAC-A is essentially a, uh, a pilot who is qualified to, to both issue targets to airplanes uh, as well as give airplanes strike clearance. And the key thing here for a FAC-A is that all of this is happening for a FAC-A in close proximity to friendly forces. So that back to that close air support where we are close to guys, to good guys on the ground. A FAC-A knows where all the good guys are on the ground. He has the SA of the battlefield to be able to find targets and also has enough SA to make sure that those targets are not too close to the friendlies on the ground. Mm -hmm. And then he brings other fighters in and clears them hot to drop on those, drop on those targets. In a situation like this with seed, there is most likely not any friendly forces on the ground in right. close proximity to us. And so uh, this would not be really a FAC-A role uh, just because there's no there's no friendlies uh, on the ground, uh, but some of the some of the data passage in terms of how I am passing target coordinates as a seed fighter to somebody else who has bombs is very similar to how I would pass it as a fac A uh, in, in a CAS situation. Right. Okay. All right. So that was you know we've we've come through through the whole gamut now in the course and where are you time-wise in the course by the time you've you've done that seed mission for the students so that that seed phase that i just talked to you about where we have four seed uh players and we have four uh four strikers that phase is a long phase that's the most intense phase that we have that is just f-16 specific and so that phase lasts about a month and so that brings us to about uh, three and a half-ish months into uh, the course. And now we start to jump into some, uh, some smaller integration, uh, integration fights where we start to integrate with maybe some F-15Cs and uh, maybe we start to integrate with some, maybe some A-10s or some EA-18Gs, uh, some growlers. Uh, so this is really the first student's look at month three and a half-ish of starting to understand how to express their F-16 capabilities to another uh, to another pilot that flies a different type of airplane, but also 
their capability or the student's ability to understand what another airplane is telling them in terms of what their capabilities are so that we can combine these capabilities together for a synergistic effect. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so these missions will oftentimes be uh, still the four seed fighters, uh, the four seed vipers, the four striker uh, vipers. And then we may, we're probably going to have a more robust surface to air missile threat lay down so that uh, we're kind of making the, the red threat harder so that we really need to have some additional seed assets like a growler or an EC-130 on station to help us deal with it. And then in addition, we'll also up the air threat so there are more red fi- more, more fighters on the red side so that we have to bring in maybe some F-15Cs or some F-22s to come help us with the air threat so that we can concentrate on bomb dropping and doing seed. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're pulling in uh, aircraft that are specialized to those different, maybe not specialized, but optimized for those roles while you are taking on the roles for which you're optimized. That's right. So in the last phase, when we were first learning how to fly seed, we were flying, we were flying eight total jets on the blue air side, four seed fighters and four strikers. And now we're probably flying anywhere between 12 to about 20 jets on, uh, on the blue side. We still have the four seed fighters. We have the four strikers. Then we probably have four other type of fighters, maybe F-22s. Uh, and then we probably have three growlers and then we might have like one EC-130. And so, uh, we're starting to get into, uh, to, to really some of that integration, uh, and, and, uh, synchronizing effects from all these different uh, platforms. Okay. A sort of a side question here, the growlers are, th- is there some sort of joint, uh, expeditionary squadron or are these all straight Navy and Marine Corps squadrons? And you guys just need to coordinate with, uh, with another service to get those assets down there again, just like in real life. Yeah, they're straight Navy. Uh, I don't think there's any growlers in the Marine Corps. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that there's not. They're all Navy. Uh, mm, okay. A lot of us wish, and a lot of growler uh, guys that I've talked to would prefer to see the growlers uh, basically either an Air Force platform or embedded uh, on a full time basis with the Air Force because the growler. In, I mean, the growler is very important for what the Navy does, but the growler is also really important for what the uh, for what the Seed Enterprise does, and the Seed Enterprise is really driven by the Air Force. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's really in the post Cold War era, we've sort of split those niches out to service areas rather than having them. You know, the Navy has its its flavor and the air force has its flavor and there's pluses and minuses. Yep. Okay. So are we rounding out the course at this point? What's, what's the capstone or is there more between what we just discussed in the capstone? Now we're rounding out the course. Now we're at uh, month four, four and a half, and now we're jumping into the integration phase, which is the last uh, month or so of the course, which takes us all the way to graduation. And the integration phrase is, is instead of like in the last phase where we had 12 to 20 aircraft on the blue side, now we've got uh, anywhere between 30 and 80 aircraft on the blue side. And yeah, that's, uh, you know, from an air control perspective alone, that's a lot of assets in a relatively small area. And I imagine uh, in a concept 
we've talked about before in the series, and I know we're going to talk about more later, even just getting the range space for that becomes problematic at some point. Yeah, the ranges, the range space that we need uh, for that needs to be uh, needs to be pretty big, and so we're fighting in a, in a chunk of airspace that's usually fifty or sixty miles wide by a hundred to one hundred and twenty miles long, uh, and when you put that many when you put that many airplanes in the same general piece of sky, a big concern is well, how do we keep the airplanes from running into each other? Because you know they're not just airliners flying along at flight level three five zero straight and level, uh, not doing any turns. I mean, there's a lot of maneuvering going on. Uh, there's a there, it's very dynamic, and so uh, that's a big part of of integration is and really the first part of of integrating uh, in a big exercise like this or a big mission like this is is figuring out how to deconflict all these airplanes so they don't have a mid-air collision. And, uh, and that often takes a good bit of time in what we call the MPC, the mission planning cell. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it, is, it is oftentimes such a big job that we will have one person in the MPC, uh, usually one very, very competent person uh, in the MPC, uh, who is in charge of building what we call our block plan. And the block plan mm-hmm. is what altitude blocks uh, everybody gets uh, to stay deconflicted from each other. Right. And so by altitude blocks, you know, we're, we're giving ranges of altitude by, you know, and then I'll go back to another ASW example. If you're prosecuting a submarine with different types of assets, say, you know, a, a P-8, uh, you know, fixed wing maritime patrol aircraft and helicopters, you're going to have the helicopters down from, surface to say 500 feet and the the ph from a thousand up uh similar concept but obviously you guys are using a much larger range block right yeah that's a it's very similar uh yeah we're given we're given a four ship or an eight ship of fighters uh usually a 2000 foot uh block of altitude and uh something that's different from Something that's different in training from how it's going to be in combat is we also have to have an altitude block for the red fighters, and so all of those red fighters, you know, those are those are our bros that are just flying on the on the on the other side for for that day as enemy guys, and so we got to deconflict from all of them as well. So oftentimes the red fighters will take uh, what we call the five to nine block, which will be five to nine thousand, fifteen thousand, and nineteen thousand. 25 to 29,000 and so forth. And the blue fighters will take the zero to four block. We'll take the surface ground level to 4,000, 10 to 14, 20 to 24 and, uh, and so forth. And then within those individual red and blue blocks, now I got to figure out, okay, where am I got these eight F 16s who are flying seed in this mission. What altitude block do they want to be at? Okay. They want to be at 20 to 22,000. So I'll try to give them the 20 to 22,000 foot block. I got uh, I got eight F-22s that are flying this as well. Where do they want to be? Well, they want to be up really high. They say they want to be above 36,000 feet. Well, 36,000 to 39,000 is a red air block, so I got to give the Raptors 40,000 to 44,000. Raptors, you guys got 40 to 44,000. Uh, nobody else is going to be up there uh, with you. And then I got... Hey Growlers, what what altitude block do you want? Hey, we want the we want to be at thirty thousand feet. And I go, all right, well I can probably put them at thirty to thirty one thousand feet. And then I go talk to a B one guy who's dropping bombs, and they're like, oh, we need to be at thirty one thousand feet. And I'm like, well, our Growlers are at thirty to thirty one thousand feet, so you can't be at thirty to thirty one thousand feet. So now we have a conflict in uh, in an altitude block. So now I got to go talk to both of those both of those platforms and go. 
hey, B1 guy, do you, no kidding, need 31,000 feet, like, for your bombs to be, uh, to hit, to, you know, to achieve weapons effects? And if he goes, yeah, then I got to go, hey, Growler, you're a support asset. The whole mission over here is the B1s dropping these bombs on this bunker. And so, dude, I need you to go take another altitude block. Can you do 32 to 33 or can you do 20, 23 to 24? And so you can see how it starts to get very complex yep. with, you know, different guys are like, oh, I need I need this altitude block. And, you know, another guy from across the room is going, no, I need that altitude block more than you do. And so uh, – <laughs> It's a full-time job that that guy has yeah. building building the block plan. And then, so how what happens with that when the exercise gets to the point where you've got fighters going to the merge, or or do they not? Is that constructive at this point in the exercise? Not really. If we go to a merge in an exercise this big, really the DLO is already achieved. Uh, but it does happen. Uh, it, 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 it happens a lot. Uh, and what will happen is you, as you stay in your altitude block, unless you have situational awareness on everything within 10 miles of you. And so okay. if I am going to merge with a, let's say that I'm at 20 to 22,000 in my Viper block, and I'm going to merge with a red a red player at 18,000. Well, he's in his 15 to 19,000 foot altitude block. So right now we're deconflicted. We will not hit each other if we both stay in our altitude blocks. Well, now in order to fight that guy, when we get to the merge, I need to go in his block or he needs to come in up into my block. Well, I can leave my block. This is a training, a training rule, uh, that is written in blood because, uh, you know, we've had guys that have had midair collisions with, uh, with other airplanes. And, uh, the training rule is that, is that I, in order to leave my block, I have to have situational awareness on everything within 10 nautical miles of me. That becomes extremely difficult when you have 60 or 70 airplanes on the blue side and 20 airplanes on the red side. It's almost impossible to know that I know where everybody that's within 10 miles of me is right now so I can leave my block. It almost, it's almost impossible in, a, uh, in an exercise this big. Right, because you don't know what you don't know. Uh, is I imagine one thing and then, you know, the two sides are trying to hide from each other to some extent, right? You're not broadcasting your position to the opponent. That's right. Yep. That's exactly right. And, uh, and, you know, as fighter pots, we've all had times where, where we think we had SA within the, the appropriate SA to leave our block. We leave our block and we come back in the debrief and find out that there was actually another airplane uh, within 10 miles of us that we didn't know. And so, you know, it's a, it's a humbling time for a fire pod cause it, cause he or she has to get up in front of the crowd and go, Hey guys, I, I screwed up today. I, uh, yeah. I left my altitude block. I committed a training rule violation. I, and, and therefore it was a safety of flight issue for everybody in this room. And, you know, you kind of take it upon yourself. You apologize and you go, that won't happen again. Here's what I learned from it. And here's, here's, yeah. uh, here's, uh, how we're moving forward. Yep. Well, and that goes back to the professionalism of, of AARs or after action reports, debriefs, you know, brutal honesty, because it's not about, you know, beating down the person who's wrong. It's about making sure we don't make a fatal mistake. Yeah, that's exactly right. Scott, to that point, uh, we, we, we have a saying that there's no rank in the debrief. And, uh, and what that means is, uh, is it doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a lieutenant or an ensign, uh, sitting across the table from a general or an admiral. If something happened in the flight that needs to be addressed, 
Uh, I, as a lieutenant or an ensign, can look across the table at the general or admiral, and uh, since there's no rank in the debrief, I can go, you know, hey, sir, you, you screwed that up. Uh, you shouldn't have been out of your block there. And, uh, you know, the professional uh, professionalism of, of what we do, uh, you know, keeps that keep, keeps us uh, kind of able to do that. that. And that general or admiral in that case or colonel or whoever it is should go, yeah, you're exactly right, dude. I screwed up and, and I'll address the crowd and, and talk to everybody about it. And yep. so that's a really cool part of, of debriefing in the, in, uh, in the fighter aviation world. Yeah. And, you know, it, it for a civilian, especially in the civilian sector, that may not sound like a conversation you have with your boss really often. But, you know, that's one of the essences of leadership is, you know, the truth is is never wrong. And uh, you got to take that on board because you got to set the ego aside. The mission is everything and your people are everything. That's right. Yep. Totally agree. Okay. So uh, so that is then the capstone for the weapons school. Yep, that's the capstone, and that, that that'll usually last, uh, you know, a month or so. And uh, in that uh, in that month, there may be each student probably flies in one or two of these really large missions per week. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of mission planning that goes into these things: uh, a day, two days of mission planning, and then the students go execute the uh, these these really large missions, and then they come back and usually debrief the next day. And so. Oftentimes, these really large missions are three or four day events, two days of mission planning, one day of execution, and then the following day is a, uh, you know, eight to 10 hour debrief. Right. And this is, you know, sort of closing out here. This is all still part of the weapons school. This is not red flag. We're going to talk about red flag and air wing Fallon in a future episode. But just to point out, this is this is all still just teaching all of this effort, all of this time. This is all about teaching people how to plan, execute, debrief, and then plan again these missions and bring that that knowledge back to their combat Air Force squadrons, right? Yep, that's right. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, I, you know, that's that is the weapons school. What uh, what haven't we covered, Chaos? Scott, we covered a bunch of stuff, uh, man, and uh, and I hope this was uh, valuable for the listener and. Uh, if you got any more questions or have people that, uh, that have questions, uh, please feel free to reach out to me and uh, shoot questions my way, and uh, I'll get them answered as I, as I can. Okay. I, I appreciate that, and uh, we'll put that out there to the listener. And, you know, at the end, I, I like to give the guest the last words. So it doesn't have to be weapon school specific, but just any closing shots here. Oh, man. I don't know. Yeah, I hit you with that one out of the blue. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, uh, no, I don't have anything for right now. Okay. Well, hey, you've been a terrific guest. This has been hugely illuminating, not just as a as an interview itself, but I think this is really tying some pieces together for the listener that they've heard so far. And, and I've been telling them, you know, hey, you got to drink from the fire hose and all these pieces come together. And this is the first time we've taken these strands of the of the rope or the line and started to braid them into something. So I re- really appreciate your time, Chaos. Hey, yeah, thanks. And uh, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on the show. I enjoyed chatting with you, Scott. All right. That was a great discussion with Chaos. I learned a lot and I hope you did too. Those individual strands we've been laying down in the Flight School and FRS or B-Course episodes are being braided together now. 
All the skills learned to this point start to coalesce as pilots and wizards begin building missions and strike packages, and then learn how to bring that knowledge back to their squadrons as weapon school graduates. And along with them, we've taken our knowledge of aviation training and are upping our game, learning about weaponeering, mission planning, and multi-platform integration, not just for air-to-air, but also for air-to-ground and seed. Part two of We'll Make You Better will feature former Top Gun commanding officer Chris Pops Papianu talking about the Navy's Fighter Weapons School. Look for that coming soon, and until then, keep your head on a swivel and get in the fight. Fights On has been made possible by a contribution from Cubic Corporation. Truth and Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow.